go ahead and open your Bibles again to Ephesians chapter 6. And I should say again and for the last time. Well, maybe not the last time. I can't necessarily speak with that assuredness, but for the last time, as far as I can tell. It has taken uh, two years, two months, and two weeks, along with 60 sermons, this being the 61st sermon, to make it uh, here or to finish uh, this short letter that Paul writes to the Ephesians. We have uh, seen this day from afar, and we, and I give glory to God that we have made it here now to the last two verses. And we recognize that what Paul has been doing here in this letter to the Ephesians is not something, he doesn't present to the Ephesians an advice column to the church. That uh, we see that this... Uh, that though we recognize that he doesn't uh, have an advice column for the church, that he seeks uh, through the power of the Spirit, through the doctrine established in the first three chapters, to transform every sphere of our lives, whether it be relationships to each other, our marriages, our employment. Paul sees application of the gospel in each and every uh, sphere of our life. He also doesn't sugarcoat the reality that this new life will be fraught with the schemes of the devil, which will appeal, appeal to our old nature. And we are certainly to see that we are clothed with the presence of our Redeemer as if clad in armor. And so as we've been recognizing this, this, uh, these couple years, that there are three chapters of Paul's letter here that are doctrinal, and three chapters that are Christological. That are, um, excuse me, three chapters being doctrinal and Christological, and three chapters being moral and practical. This means that what we have seen is, is in Ephesians, that Ephesians is both deeply theological and deeply practical. Really, the truth is, is that uh, the more we learn of theology, the more we should grow in our practical living as Christians, we see that it's deeply theological and that its rich primary truths are presented in it, tracing back all the, uh, the way or all to the Father's eternal and benevolent will as the one origin. That the Son's mediation and blood as the one channel, union with Him being the one sphere, and to the Spirit's abiding work and influence as the one inner power. While the grand end of the provision of salvation and the organization and blessing of the church is his own glory in all the elements of its fullness. It's also deeply practical that the focus for all the other doctrines in Ephesians is the church as God's new society. And so in a sense, the book links these truths of Christianity to us, God's people. In other words, it is practical we are told who we are, how we came to be as we are, what we shall be, and what we must do now in light of that destiny. We have been 
following Paul's overarching desire to show and explain the exalted Christ with an emphasis on our union with him uh, as we've uh, traveled through or journeyed through this letter uh, to the Ephesians. We looked at the idea of the exalted Christ under four headings. The first heading in chapter 1 is the heavenly witness of the exalted Christ. The second one was in chapters 2 and 3 about the earthly witness of the exalted Christ. And in chapters 4 and 5, we looked at the earthly reality of the exalted Christ. And then as we have spent time in these uh, previous weeks in chapter 6, under the heavenly reality of the exalted Christ. And so under these four headings, uh, we see it falls under the one banner of the exalted Christ, and certainly as it relates to the practicality of it, our union with the exalted Christ and the implications of it. And so now we come to the last two verses of this letter, and Paul interplays it all here though in succinct words. So follow along as I read for us just two verses this morning out of Ephesians 6, verses 23 and 24. The word of the Lord says, Peace be to the brethren, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us go to him for help again this morning. Oh Lord, we come to you now as we have uh, read your word, and now we are about to consider it, Lord, the truths contained in it, the imperatives as well as the indicatives, Lord, we come before you and pause and seek your help. For this is your word breathed out to us. And it would not be, it will not be without the help of your spirit that it is uh, communicated well, that it is received by faith, and that it is made effectual for your purposes. That is that we would not just be hearers of your word, but doers also. We trust you will do all that you, your holy will. And we thank you, Lord, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, last week we set out to understand that our corporate gathering as a kingdom gathering whereby the kingdom advances and in which we are to pray confident in the promises of God and so are further sustained in our current exile. We wanted to see or we, we, were, we set out to see or I set out to teach that this idea that corporate prayer that Paul calls upon the Ephesians to do was not just to make well wishes for him or that he had well wishes for them but that it was an actual function, an actual means by which the kingdom advances in this age. And so we don't just gather as a social gathering this morning. We don't just gather because we have common interests or that we do things the same or dress the same or we have a common culture or a common nationality. We gather this morning under uh, a new humanity, under the second Adam. And we gather this morning to advance his kingdom. And we do so by attending to the means of grace. And so we do so also that we would be sustained in our current time of pilgrimage. This week, our goal is to understand that the grace and love of God 
is the energizing power or the energizer for an essential conclusion to our peace, love, and faith through which we exercise our union with the exalted Christ. So this week our goal is to understand that the grace and love of God is the energizer for an essential conclusion to our peace, love, and faith through which we exercise our union with the exalted Christ. And so as we see all these uh, common words and, and very uh, fundamental words of Christianity, peace, love, faith, and grace, employed by the apostle here at the end of his letter, we're going to look at, at those four uh, words under three headings, their origin, their order, and their object. Paul opened his letter to the Ephesians with a treatise on the Trinitarian operations and salvation before he gave them practical application to it. And this highlights the truism that all theology should ultimately end in doxology, should ultimately end in praise and admiration and praise and exaltation of God. And so at the end of his letter, he returns to this idea and he returns to a very Trinitarian benediction, a benediction that is a, a good word to the saints. It is a blessing to the saints of the Lord. He begins by calling them saints and those that are faithful, and then he ends by uh, drawing them to the benefits of them being saints. And he notes so in the usage of these four terms, peace, love, faith, and grace. As it relates to peace, peace is the wholeness and richness of life that belongs to God's children. It is the wholeness and richness of life that belongs to God's children. It is the awesome reality that those who were children of wrath Enemies of God have been brought near and made joint heirs with Christ. It's often used by the Spirit to greet the churches as well as a parting encouragement. We read in, the, in our, in our uh, divine greetings that there is grace, mercy, and peace. And oftentimes at the end, it's peace I leave with you or peace to the brethren. It is this wonderful reality that those that have been uh, shut out of the blessings of God have now been lavished by the riches of his mercy. It is not a small thing to be at peace with the creator of the universe, the one true and holy and righteous God. We also have the term love being employed. Love is God the Father's and the Lord Jesus Christ's holy, gracious, and undying commitment to be our God in the spirit of God. In this love, we were predestined to life. In this love, we lack no good thing. By this love, we are able to love others to treat others as we would ourselves. We see in both peace and love, we have 
first the relationship to God in that we have peace with God and God loves us. And then we have our relationship to others. That we can now have peace with our brethren, with our brothers and sisters. He, he talked about it in Ephesians 4 that there shouldn't be strife among us. There is one Lord, one body, one faith, one baptism. We are to maintain the spirit of unity. Because we have peace with God, we can have peace with one another. And if God loves us, then we can love others. Secured in the love of God and the peace of God, we are able to act out in both those virtues to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And even beyond that, we're to love our enemies. We are, if at all possible, live peaceably amongst your neighbors. The third term and common term that's employed here is faith. Faith is to possess the knowledge Christ died for sinners. It's to assent that this is true. Truly, Christ died for sinners. And it is to trust that it is your own. Truly, Christ died for sinners. Namely, me, so I trust my sins are forgiven. So that's why we see that it is peace be to the brethren and love with faith. And faith is the possession and of the knowledge, the assent to its truth and the trust in it as your own. And so it is the instrument by which we are all saved in Christ. And where would we be without these common terms if we did not also, if he did not also include grace? Grace is the word that most characterizes the Christian religion. Grace is God's undeserved kindness and mercy to judgment deserving sinners. The gospel of Christ is the gospel of amazing grace. It was God's grace that elected us. It was God's grace that found us. It was God's grace that saved us. It's God's grace that keeps us. And it's God's grace that will bring us safely to glory. And so it's fitting that Paul, in encouraging the Ephesians and prayerfully encouraging them with this benediction to say, Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love if you love the lord jesus christ then you are experiencing his grace for apart from grace we would not love christ we can see that as as an observe, observant citizen of this world as an observant citizen of this age we see that in our own society that in oftentimes when we look at uh, the evil in this world, that we, as you boil it down, that there is uh, uh, consternation not against just good things, but specifically against things pertaining to Christ. There are tolerances for everything, almost, except for those that love Christ. For apart from the grace of God, we too would hate Christ. And so here we observe that the peace, love, and faith, that peace, love, and faith are the essential conclusion of the grace and love of God in whom all these blessings originate. Peace, 
Love, faith, and grace have their origin in the triune God of Scripture. Triune God of this world. First, as it relates to from God the Father. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verse 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that, he would be, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. Or in love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. Throughout chapter 1 and throughout the letter, it speaks of the Father's electing grace. And what of the Lord Jesus Christ? Chapter 1, verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Verse 11. And also we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his own will. We have obtained an inheritance in Christ. So in chapter 1 and throughout this letter, it speaks of the Son's redeeming work. And finally, the, the fellowship of the Spirit. The fellowship of the Spirit. Verse 13 in him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. This establishes that the Spirit, as the uniter to Christ, he is the in of the in him. When we read about being in Christ or a part of Christ or in him, we are reading about the mission of the Spirit to unite us to Christ. That's the fellowship of the Spirit that is more directly spoken of in 2 Corinthians 13, 13. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Athanasius, commenting on this verse, says the following, For this grace and gift given in the Trinity is given by the Father through the Son in the Holy Spirit. Just as the grace given through the Son is from the Father, so too we cannot have fellowship with the gift except in the Holy Spirit. Athanasius uses this text to establish the importance of the believer's participation in the Spirit in order to experience the love of the Father and the grace of the Son. So peace, love, and faith originate in the one triune God who has bestowed his grace and love to us. And this comes to us through a logical order. As it relates to peace, love, in faith, by grace, their order. We can use peace and love as shorthand for the twin benefits of union with Christ. 
For what is peace if it's not being declared righteous? Because if you are to stand in peace or have a relationship of peace to God, you must be righteous before God and so justified before him. What is love if it's not the outward affection, if it's not the working out of such, of, of such truths of union with Christ as it relates to sanctification? So peace and love can be used as shorthand for the twin benefits of union with Christ, justification and sanctification. And as we note this, we also must observe that though there is logical order, as I will explain, uh, these graces both flow from our union with Christ. So there is a logical order to it that we will get to, but first we must understand that they flow from our union with Christ. So sanctification is not caused by justification, nor would our justification be caused by our sanctification. But they both find their location in Christ rather than in one another. So that as uh, a preacher and a minister of the word, I can preach and minister the whole counsel of God, both justification and sanctification, through union with Christ. That I wouldn't stand up here and shy away from the commands of Scripture, knowing that those who possess the Spirit of God, those who are united to God, will actually respond to those commands with obedience. I, I should not shy away from that. And obviously, I would, I would not shy away from the truth that we are justified by faith alone. I would not shy away to tell us that there is nothing you can do to merit your salvation. That even the faith by which you come to God is a grace provided by God himself. And so what is known as the twin benefits of union with Christ are justification and sanctification both having their location in Christ and not one another. As Voss says, that all that the sinner receives flows from the living Christ. So having established this, the older writers were also able to see a logical order so as to further distinguish between these benefits. The importance of establishing a logical order provides an understanding of their distinction. Turn with me to Romans chapter 5. We can see this in just two verses out of Paul's letter to the Romans. And we see this as it comes to, comes to us sequentially in his letter as he's establishing from chapter 1 to chapter 12 the, uh, what does he say, at, at the beginning of chapter 12 that summarizes, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifices. In verses 1 through 11, or chapters 1 through 11, Paul is establishing the mercies of God. He's giving a tome of Christian salvation. And as he does so sequentially, he does so in a logical order. As we begin in Romans 5, chapter 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And he goes on to speak of this justifying faith and justification by faith alone. And then turn with me to Romans chapter 6, 
verse 1, and we'll see this logical order between justification and sanctification. He gets to the end, and he's saying you're justified by faith alone, that you cannot work your justification out. There's no process justification to be had. And so he gets to 6 verse 1, and he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? May it never be. How shall we who died in sin still live in it? Sanctification is the putting off and the putting on. It is the progression of the Christian life to continue to live in the obedience to Christ, in, in, uh, in gratitude for his gracious redemption. So there is a logical order here as we see it in Romans 5 and 6 and we see it at the end of Ephesians 6 where he says, Peace be to the brethren and love with faith. That logical order of justification and sanctification. The Christian is planted in Christ by faith and justified by the ministry of the word and the efficacy of the spirit, and so finds peace with God, who having delivered him, now transforms him more and more from his native sin-loving and so God and neighbor-hating state into the image of the Son, that is, a sin-hating and so God and neighbor-loving state, and this all working by grace alone. In other words, God works love in and through those only who are reconciled and justified, those at peace with him by faith on account of our union with Christ. God works love in and through those who are reconciled and justified, those at peace with him by faith on account of our union with Christ. So the grace and love of God is the energizer for an essential conclusion to our peace, love, and faith through which we exercise our union with the exalted Christ who is the object we focus on. He is the end of our love. He is the end of our peace. We desire peace with the brethren because we have peace with Christ and because Christ is our head. We love the brethren because Christ loved us and Christ. And we love others. We love Christ by loving others. Verse 24, grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. That incorruptible love there is a translation of a word in, in, the, in the King James that's also translated sincerity. And so this is this idea of a, of a love that not necessarily is not uh, at all tinged with sin because we as fallen creatures cannot, um, even in our best efforts, not sin even a little with our love. But it is a love that is wrought from something incorruptible. It comes from true faith. And so, and so it is received by God in Christ and so it is with incorruptible love. But it says, grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ. He ends his 
his, uh, his letter with the object of peace and love and faith and grace, and it is the Lord Jesus Christ. As expressed in uh, Ephesians chapter 1 in verse 14, who is given as a pledge for our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Earlier in verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Here we see this as the object, the Lord Jesus Christ, to the praise of his glory. The end of God's decrees, and this is none other than his own glory. Every rational agent acts for an end, and God being the most perfect agent, his glory, the highest end, there can be no doubt, but all his decrees are directed to that end. And here is expressed as love for Christ, is to praise of his glory. These are uh, like terms that we, we love Christ, we praise his glory. He is the beloved of chapter 1, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He is the cornerstone of the true temple in chapter 2, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. He is the mystery of the old covenant in chapter 3, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. He is the head in chapter 4, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. He is the husband of chapter 5, loved the church. He loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that we might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. And he is the victorious warrior of chapter 6, who makes us able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. This is the Christ who we are united to. This is the Christ whom we are to love. And so by this, <clears throat> we are able to receive this benediction at the end of Ephesians. Peace be to the brethren. And love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, that we would be peaceable with one another. Oh, that we would love one another. These are difficult things because in our old nature, we are sin-loving, so God and neighbor-hating. But it is the hope that we have been given a new neighbor, a new neighbor, a new nature. And so that we would be sin-hating and so God and neighbor-loving. Christians have the great assurance that when we are united to Christ by faith, we receive the whole Christ and all of the benefits of redemption, not just some of them. And so the grace 
and love of God is the energizer for an essential conclusion to our peace, love, and faith through which we exercise our union with the exalted Christ to the praise of his glorious grace. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we give you praise this morning as we have considered your wonderful grace and mercy to us. Those that have at one point, Lord, apart from faith, are children of wrath, destined for destruction and judgment, enemies of God. And yet, Lord, by your great love with which you have loved us, you've predestined us in Christ to come to him in faith and repentance, call upon his name as our only hope in this life and the next, and so have received by union with him all the benefits that he has acquired. What riches of mercy are afforded to us. What peace, what love, what faith. May our hearts overflow with praise to you. May our lives overflow with gratitude and obedience. We thank you, Lord, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we have considered the word preached, we have even recited the truths of Scripture. We have read them. We have sung of them. We now have...